Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the first of two midweek episodes of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and here to converse with me is, as always, my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. This episode is the result of a premium pick by one of our listeners who has chosen to stay anonymous, but simply ask that we dedicate this to Aaron. That's Aaron with an E. I know, but, Aaron. You, you would love to get that. I, I would. I was hoping that he was doing this for me, but alas, it is not. No, not Aaron. It's Aaron. <laughs> so you know who you are, and we hope we do it justice. And what a pick it was. This was a film that I had no idea existed, uh, which the title kind of alludes to a little bit for me. <laughs> and man, I wish I'd seen it about three times before this podcast, because... Man, there's a lot here, and I made sense of some of it and didn't make sense of others, and we'll just kind of see where that takes us. We're, of course, talking about the 2009 sci-fi romance Mr. Nobody, and hopefully we don't end up confusing ourselves too much. <laughs> if you're interested in picking up a film for us to cover, you can always visit our premium picks uh, topic on the website under support the show. It's right up there at the top. And there's even a discount if you're a patron. So, yay. Absolutely yay. We would love for that. I just want to kind of set the stage a bit for our listeners and let them know that we are not going to try and explain this movie. There is a ton of quantum mechanics and science going on. And we're not here to figure out whether or not it's accurate or understand exactly whether or not things could be potentially happening for real. With a story this confusing at times, uh, that might be the expectation, but we're really all about reacting to how it made us feel and what it made us think about. I guess I should also say, spoiler warning while I'm here, Patrick, like big one, this is not a movie you want to know anything about going into, so just go watch it, and if you haven't already... Then come join us for what I think will be a really great conversation. Fantastic. And a great way to introduce our one-word takeaways, which we always start out with, Aaron. So why don't you kick us off? All right. My one-word takeaway is choice. And perhaps it comes off as a bit of a cheat to pick a word that is basically the movie's biggest theme. But honestly, Patrick, that's what I can't stop thinking about ever since seeing the film. And since that is what I believe is the director's intent... It really makes this movie a major success for me. My mind was blown the whole time watching it. Um, whose isn't when trying to keep track of three or four, I guess, if you count the present iteration of Mr. Nobody, separate timelines that are constantly changing with very little notice. I felt like both my brain and my heart were on a roller coaster ride. It was very, very emotional for me. It's a film that I instantly wanted to watch again, which is very, very rare for me. And I can see myself digging deeper into it over time. But yeah, I found myself wondering about every choice I make or don't in the last 24 hours. And I'm both loving that and also terrified by it. So great movie. Really glad we were given the opportunity to watch it and discuss. So thank you, Anonymous Patron. Yeah, I look at this and I think of it along the same lines as Primer. Um, or, or coherence where you have this element of sci-fi that might be real or based on actual science, but it throws you into a thematic story that plays with those ideas. And my word ties into yours pretty well. I chose maybe. <laughs> and when it comes to choices, the most optimistic word I can think of is the word maybe. And watching Mr. Nobody made me feel like, this was a story full of maybes, sometimes for the best, sometimes not. Sometimes, as you mentioned, it's hard to tell. But in any case, choices give us that small sense of wonder, that what-if moment that allow us to ask that question. Maybe this would have happened. Maybe that didn't. And it forces us as an audience to ask not only the characters, but ourselves that same question. Mr. Nobody is definitely a movie built on self-reflection from its characters and its audience. And it may take multiple viewings to get it, but maybe 
we can find the emotional thread that runs through it in our conversation tonight. So I, I loved it. I, I'm like you, I wanted to go back and watch it again, not only to figure out more things and, but also to start catching a few things here and there to pick up on some of the subtext. We talked a, a good deal about this in our episode on us, how Jordan Peele puts these little clues and Easter eggs and symbolic references all throughout the movie to try to amplify his themes. And I think what we were challenged by, uh, maybe not all of us, but I know you were challenged by the fact that if those elements were removed, would that story still be as compelling? Or is it because of those elements that the, that the story is compelling? Actually, it was more, for me, it was more just to clarify that it, I, I feel a movie, I, not whether they were removed, would it be compelling, but can it stand on its own without the need to understand them deeper in gotcha. the moment? Yeah. If that makes sense. Like, I, I don't need them to be removed from, you know, they can be there, but I have to be able to enjoy it in the moment, regardless of not understanding everything at the same time. Right. Well, based on your social media reaction to this, as I saw, I think on Facebook or Twitter or one of the many platforms that, that you so actively use. Wow. I don't know if this that's is, a dig or a compliment. No, it's a comp, or? it's a compliment. My friends, this is the social media connection that Feel and Film has with the world. Okay. That's right. I'm your back end guy. I'm the guy behind the guy. This is your upfront dude who He's speaks for both of us. I'm the wizard, right? And I'm small in comparison to what people might think I am. Anyway, I digress. So you compared this, at least in your emotional reaction to movies like Passengers and a couple of others. I don't quite remember, but it fell into this genre of sci-fi romance. And you said it's essentially sold you from the beginning. If any, any new movies that come out that have that sci-fi romance attachment to them, you're sold already. And I wanted to ask, why is that? What is it about this genre that compels you to say something like that? Well, it's not quite what I said, but I, I said so, that it has yeah. definitely become a favorite genre. And so in essence, you're right. In a way, it makes me a little bit excited, I think, for things that come out in this subgenre. I really don't even know what to call it. Frankly, I didn't realize this was a thing, Patrick, until I started watching this movie. And I was like, why do I feel like this is a romance movie? I thought I was watching a hard sci-fi picture. And then I thought, well, this is a hard sci-fi movie. Like, you know, it's both. So I went and looked it on IDMDB, and I realized that it does fall into these both categories, sci-fi and romance. And I started to think about it, and I was like, well, isn't that essentially what Passengers does and Never Let Me Go? does and to a large extent wally does parts of ex machina does the time traveler's wife and i realized i I actually really enjoy stories like this and it's not shocking to me because i'm an emotional creature and i do like a good romance that's not way over dramatized and i love sci-fi and i found that it's just two really cool genres to put together and i think that it Science fiction and the ideas that we can explore within that bubble give you some really intriguing ways to present romantic conflict and romantic desires that maybe you don't have when you're just telling a traditional story. I mean, your name would fall in this category, too, to be honest. Because we're talking kind of time travel, body swap type stuff. And I think that it is able to elevate that romance for me um, because it's a little bit, gosh, I don't know what the word would be, but maybe it's spectacular. It's not, there's, there's an element, a lack of realism to it that makes it exciting and I don't feel like I'm missing out on something because in my head I can say this could never happen. So this is not something I feel like I'm missing out on because it doesn't exist. This possibility doesn't exist. I'm just considering it. Whereas in a traditional fiction story that's not set in the future or doesn't have sci-fi elements, I can think to myself, well, man, I could have had that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. And I think it puts you in a position where you can participate as an audience member without necessarily 
having an Uber connection, but having a theatrical connection to the story and to the characters. I think what adds to that, Aaron, is that sense of displacement in time. There are, I've mentioned this before, Lost is one of my favorite television shows until it ended. And it wasn't because it ended, it was how it ended that really bugged me. Because the showrunner set up a great mythology. And they let us ask a bunch of questions. But along with that, there was this duality that existed with all of these great character backgrounds, which I recognized from the very beginning. The first few seasons really, really had a fantastic balance of saying, what's this island all about? And what's with the stuff going on here? And also, oh, I didn't know that about this character. And so by the end of the series, they figuratively and literally had to land the plane and say, what do we do? Do we resolve the relationships and finish those off? Or do we try to answer the big questions about the island? And for my money, I wanted the latter because I was more interested in that. I like the characters, but I like the characters in relationship to the bigger mythology. The thing about Mr. Nobody that's really interesting to me is the fact that it can take both of those elements, a sci-fi element and a drama or a romance, and find balance where I may be intrigued by the fact that there is potential time travel or maybe hypnotism or this tension of switching time and displacement, but I'm equally as concerned about what's going on in those time periods. I wasn't asking myself how this is happening. I wasn't trying to figure out if Nemo is living in these timelines simultaneously, if he was imagining, although those are questions that I asked, but they weren't distracting. They were really more about how is this way of storytelling enhancing the overall narrative. Christopher Nolan, I think, is a great example of someone who uses time displacement and mismatched narratives to really enhance his story. I love the disruptive nature of it. I think it added to what was going on. But if you took those things away, I started thinking about this. And again, in one viewing, I can't really make a full, clear kind of explanation in my head about this. But I thought if you took the time travel element or the displacement away, would the moments be as interesting? I think they would because there's some really fantastic acting. There's tender moments that take place. There's enough subtlety in what people are wearing and where they are and how things are shot that make the story in and of itself pretty compelling. And when you add that sci-fi element to it, for me, that's just icing on the cake. Yeah. So if you're referring to the quantum mechanic issue and the big crunch part of the storyline where we're going into the future and it's now 2092 and he's the last mortal on earth and all of that stuff, you're absolutely right. You could take it out and just be telling a story about a guy who has had a traumatic event and essentially created these three different paths in his brain and is remembering them and telling a story as if he had experienced all of these different lives. It would be just as compelling. It would be just as interesting and as emotionally moving as if you didn't have all of that extra time travel stuff. But you're right, it does make it a little more interesting. And I think it will make it more rich on future rewatches because that's some of the stuff that I want to go back and need to go back in order to understand a little better. Therein lies the difference between something like this and us, where I was completely engaged in this movie and emotionally riveted from start to finish. It never slowed down and took me to a place where I got lost. I shook my head a lot. I got confused a lot, but it was always brought back by the character moments and the interactions that Nemo would have with various women and people in his life, like his parents. And so even if we cut to something strange in the future that I didn't quite understand in the moment, it didn't lose me. Whereas us lost me completely for a section of the film and required me to go and understand it in order to enjoy that section as much. Or I felt that way. It didn't for everyone. This one didn't do that for me. And so it left me wanting to go back and visit it and desiring to go back because I thought those pieces would enhance my viewing, but weren't necessary. Right. You weren't filling in gaps. You were really just adding texture and touch ups to a painting that was finished for you as a, as a, as an audience. Not to get very symbolic there. That's the only way to go. 
Speaking of symbols and, and themes, the big thing that you mentioned in your one word takeaway was this idea of choice. And you're absolutely right. If there was one theme that could be pulled out, it's all about choice. And this movie, rightly so, is filled with a large number of quotes. I mean, I was writing them down left and right, like, ooh, that's good. Ooh, that's good. And I'm not going to just have this be a quote fest. This is not Goonies. This is not <laughs> Top Gun. Um, I don't I have had the- I had the screenplay up. I, I actually oh, got, good. I was oh, recording, wow. not now, but when I was watching the movie, I had, I was taking notes so fast and like copying quotes down so fast that I got tired of like worrying about misquoting. And I just found the screenplay and pulled it up and was copy and pasting them because you're right. I have so many notes of quotes in this. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just crazy. But one of the quotes that stood out to me was when, when Nemo says, you have to make the right choice. As long as you don't choose, everything remains possible. That is a bizarre thing to say. You have to make the right choice. As long as you don't choose, everything remains possible. That feels like three different statements to me. And I wanted to ask you, what do you make of that statement? Does it make sense to you? Well, yes. I mean, I think it's point blank absolutely correct as long as you don't choose everything remains possible and that's the beauty of the future and not knowing the future it's the the beauty of the ending beauty and frustration of the ending of inception of not knowing reality it's goes back to the old thing in the matrix of choosing the red pill or the blue pill that i always tell you i would probably choose the fake world because I like the possibility that it it brings about rather than the finality of knowing where I am and what is happening to me in the moment. And so when we come to this matter of choice, it's really intriguing to me. And it's funny because this, this quote starts with actually more to it. And in the beginning of the quote, he says, we cannot go back. And that was really key to me. We cannot go back. That's why you have to make the right choice. He's experiencing something that we all experience every day. And I think that our brains allow us to not dwell on every little decision, but we in actuality go through this process constantly where we open the refrigerator and it's, do I pick the cheese or do I pick the chocolate? You know what I mean? And we don't sit and have a long existential drama play out in our head where our entire life changes based on the simple decision of whether or not we pick cheese or chocolate. But in the moment, we have some sort of a processing that is happening. And that is what this whole movie explores, is this idea that every choice is creating this alternate path. It reminds me a lot of comic book universes where there's these infinite versions of superheroes or Spider-Men into the Spider-Verse, where these different Spider-Men have come to exist in different places, all because of the way that the choice is played out. And I think that it is really, really intriguing, and it is what has left me for the last 24 hours just Considering everything I do, I'll tell you the, the one time this happens that stuck out to me the most is with Anna when he's originally meeting her. Um, and well, I think he's 15 or, or moving along and I think they're at the beach. I can't remember exactly, but he specifically says to her, I don't go swimming with idiots. And the way that his entire freaking life has changed because of that choice. It's such a simple thing that it stuck with me so hard that Something he didn't put a lot of thought into, i.e. picking cheese or chocolate, had this lasting effect on the way that their relationship played out over time. And that concept, that idea was just fascinating to me. And I felt like he's, the movie is really hitting on something um, at a heart level that we can take away from it, that we can be more aware of our choices. While we may not ever know what happens, right? Because... Ultimately, if we don't choose, then everything is possible. But I, I would push back and say that there's really no way to not choose. I would say that not choosing is choosing. 
and that that creates a path in and of itself. But just the idea of that, I think being aware of it is something really cool to take with you into the real world after you see a movie like that. Yeah, I interpreted that statement as being a an optimistic approach to not making a choice, to being stagnant. By saying everything is possible, it's almost as if Nemo has more value in thinking about the possibility of an outcome never being experienced being better than actually choosing the quote wrong one. And I can see value in that because if you don't make the wrong choice, even though you're not making the right choice, both choices are still out there. They're still pure. They're still kind of unexplored. They're mysterious. I think there's some interesting value. I mean, let's take your cheese chocolate analogy. If I chose not to take on either one, they both still exist in the refrigerator. And that gives me the opportunity to have them later, have them later. Right. Or to imagine and to remember how good the last piece of cheese that I had was, or to imagine how good that last piece of chocolate was and how I don't want to taint that. I don't want to taint either one. And so it's almost as if he's taking these experiences that he may or may not have actually participated in, and he's elevating them beyond the actual reality of any choice that he made. And the ambiguity of that is what's really interesting to me, because that's one of the questions I have that is really more of a side question, not I need to figure this out in order to enjoy the movie, but it's, does he experience all that for real, or is it all in his mind? Well, is there a difference, and does it matter? And that's really where the crux of this lies, I think, what we see him kind of trying to explain to the journalist in the end, because he's trying to figure out, like, does d- does this, did this happen? And Nemo's like, it doesn't matter whether or not it happened. That's not the point. The point is, I believe it did, or I think... I have the memory of it happening, and that's enough for me. Um, I'll, this is gonna probably be a terrible thing for me to come up with, and this is what happens when you podcast on the fly, and you don't pre-think these things out, but here's my analogy that popped into my head, alright? <laughs> and, and I'm now divorced, and I have been for many years. Frankly, it's been a long time since I've had the kind of intimacy that comes with a marriage. But I remember vividly things about intimacy that in my mind I can have as an experience that to an extent satisfies those desires that I'm unable to have at this point in my life. Does that make sense? That's, I mean, that's what Nemo is doing. He's, like you said, elevating that choice, that potential outcome absolutely i I was i was watching (laughs) in honor of the passing of the great luke perry i was watching a few of the pilot early first season episodes of 90210 and as i was watching these i remember having flashball memories of when i actually watched the show when it was on television and i got to thinking about the circumstances surrounding that and not how i wished i could go back to being a person in junior high or high school, but how I remember the good feelings and the the great moments of growing up when I did. When my wife and I go to visit my parents who live across town, we always go through an old neighborhood that I have a vivid season of my life existing there, like after college and my young adulthood. And that that season, that season of memories does not go away. It will always be a part of me. How I feel about that is independent of that. But the fact is, I will always have a connection to those things. And what it does is it kind of forces me to relive some of those moments. Like, oh, and then I start thinking, well, what if I would have made this choice? What if I would have chosen to live over here instead of over there? What kind of relationships would I have developed as a result of that? Would I have had a different job because the people that lived over here gave me an opportunity to take this job? And I think we do that as people. And it's not about regret. It's just about replayability. It's about mental role playing. What would have happened if this would have taken place? 
maybe this would have done that. Maybe would have this would have been there. But it's not really regret. It's really more of a. It, it, it's like the Marvel comics. What if? Yeah. And it's it's playing those stories out to think that could have been really interesting. But I guess the question for for Nemo is he doesn't have regrets because he's getting the best and worst of what we might call non-decision making. Right. This question comes to me all the time. People say, do you regret your time in the Navy? I had a painful end to my career of 15 and a half years in the Navy to the point where it didn't go down the way I wanted to go down. And I never was fully involved and in, in, in into my life as a sailor and as a military person. It wasn't something I loved. It was something I kind of just did. And People say, did you regret it? Do you regret that? Do you wish you would have never gone in? And I immediately go to no, because that's what led me to Seattle, which led me to my wife at the time, which led me to my kids. And I would never give up the way my kids are right now in this moment. And those things, you're right. We play them out in our head all the time. And you're, it does find itself listed as regret for many people. But what's really cool about this movie is showing us a man who, you know, there, there's so many different possible timelines. Like maybe you get the same kids, but they're just different. Their personalities are different. Or maybe you don't. You know, maybe you end up having to be the stepbrother to the girl that you fell in love with. You know, there's just all of these different paths. And you're, it's really cool to see him get to experience all of them. The, the wins and the losses. I couldn't help but like think about that constantly. And I think that's why it affected me so deeply on a personal level is because I saw him experiencing these wins and losses constantly over and over and over. And so it was this back and forth of joy and pain, joy and pain that I can relate to um, in my own life. And when I access my own memories, so yeah, really, really cool concept. And I think the, the movie challenges us as an audience to rethink the idea of both good and bad choices. Because as you mentioned, Nemo, if I'm being theoretical here, if Nemo could control, if these were not actual experiences, then it would make sense to me to have a guy who didn't drown, who wasn't shot, who didn't have these massive endings to his life that brought about pain having one of his loves become completely depressed and having to fight that each and every day and then having her die at one point it's this interesting thing that we we see the choices that he makes and we see that the end result isn't quote good but the fact is i think the movie is telling us that Choices are inherently valuable, not necessarily good or bad, but choices are valuable because those choices may lead to a bad situation. But as you mentioned, as I've seen in my own life, they they may not satisfy a need that we have immediately, but they may lead to something better later on. There was a point in my life where I was slated to move to Michigan to do some Christian work up there, working with a local church. And because of choices that I made here in Arkansas, along with some choices that were being made up there, that didn't come to be. And then six months later, I meet my wife. So what does that say? Did I make the right choice? I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the question is, did and do I feel satisfied with where I am right now because of the choices that I made and have those choices influenced me to a point where I see every choice that I make as valuable instead of good or bad. Now, yes, there are things that you do that are you just mistakes that you make. And I don't want to discount that because I've made mistakes, but countless people in the business world will tell you, you learn more from your failures than you do your successes. That to me seems like living your life, making choices, it's all about the value that you have from the result of those choices, not necessarily about the consequences or the what the choices bring to you directly. How does this shape me a year from now? How does it shape me six months from now? And that's really what I think 
is great about this film is that it shows us a guy, whether or not he's really experiencing these things, he's embracing the good and bad choices because he sees them all as valuable to a fulfilling life. I think you're 100 percent correct. Um, And I like that I pull that message away from this film that it, again, is something you can take with you from the movie into your life. So where we put so much weight on everything that happens that we think we control all of this. And we are, like you said, how you only met your wife because you didn't move there. We think that we control that, but there is an element of randomness that exists that is completely out of our control, no matter what our choices are. And I, it's shown to us in the film in a brilliant way, I think, because there's a moment after a lot of buildup where Nemo has finally come back and found Anna again. And they have this tender little moment and she's unsure and she talks about how she thought about him every day. And we have her give him her phone number and say, I want you to call me in two days. And then we see a raindrop fall and hit the phone number perfectly and blur it out. And he no longer has a means of contacting her. It's gone in an instant. It's taken from him. And it's not a choice that he made unless you consider him holding out the paper in the rain a choice. And he launches into this explanation. He says, because two months earlier, an unemployed Brazilian boiled an egg. The heat created a microclimate in the room, slight difference of temperature and heavy rain. Two months later on, on the other side of the world, that Brazilian boiled an egg instead of being at work. He would have lost his job in a clothing factory because six months earlier, I would have compared the price of jeans and I will have bought the cheaper pair. As a Chinese proverb says, a single snowflake can bend the leaf of the bamboo. Jeans production will have moved to other countries, but I lost every trace of Anna. And so there's like all of these cascading things that happen that are out of his control, no matter what choice he made. And so it, really grounds us in understanding that while they there is a value to every choice you make, that there will always be that innate randomness and fate to things as well. And I think I, I, think I saw a, a belief from the director, the writer here, that in a lot of senses, it's going to come down to the same thing mostly anyway. Like they're going to converge at some point, however they would have. Uh, Nemo even says something to that effect, I believe. He says, you know what they say, everything works out in the end, even badly. And I got this idea that no matter what choices you make, it's going to go the way it's going to, fate is going to take it. You just, you're fooling yourself if you think you're in total control of this. Yeah. This is a this is a movie that embraces that, but not without participation. And at no point did I see Nemo give up on whatever situation he was currently in. He was only stopped by water, either drowning in a lake. Great motif, yeah. And it's fantastic. a fantastic motif because water is typically symbolic of life. And he happens to die in most of the instances where water is, or he loses something, the raindrop, he loses contact with Anna, but he's always actively participating in the moment that he is. And I don't know if the film is trying to say this directly, but I think there's a bit of carpe diem that is being acted out here with his life because he doesn't have the greatest life with all of these women. Anna, I think is probably the one that, he is in pursuit of the most, but even even Elise and Laura, I can't remember her the third name. I just call her the red, blue, and yellow women. Jean. Jean, there you <laughs> no, go. I'm very close to Laura. Yeah. <laughs> but there are issues with even with Anna, but he chooses to pursue those relationships, whether selfishly or selflessly, but there's still an active pursuit. There's this one great scene where where Elise is in the bed and she is completely like in her depression and he said something about the car and she tells him you care more about that car than you do about me why is that 
And he goes down and sets the thing on fire. And he said, there's a problem with the car. I fixed it or something along those lines. I don't know what it's like to live with something, live with someone with that kind of illness where it's a constant battle. But I would imagine that being in a relationship and fighting for that relationship has got to be difficult on both people because you almost feel like you're, I mean, you have to genuinely love that person to walk with them through mental illness or maybe a debilitating injury uh, illness of some kind walking that path with someone that might have cancer or is dealing with Hodgkin's or, or, you know, these, these things that change a person that alter their life in a significant way, it affects both people. And I love the hope behind that. The fact that he, at least to my perception, did not give up on these relationships. That being said, there was one relationship that stood out and I don't know if it was intentional. I feel like it kind of was. And that was with, with Anna and the ending really seems to support this. And so I wanted to ask you, Aaron, what was it about her that you think made her stand out above Elise and Jean? Well, I'm going to have to do this by kind of breaking them all three down. So bear with me. Okay. Um, and then feel free to refute anything I say. After I'm done here. Um, so I, I see this, I see these three women as three distinct versions of love. I see Anna as the true love, the first love. They love each other. I see Elise as the friend love who fills a void for, in this case, a missing Anna. He loves her, but she doesn't love him. She specifically says, I love Stefano. He doesn't love me, ironically, but I can't help myself. I'm in love with him. That, that destroys me personally because I think it's something that people other than me and myself, of course, can relate to in a big way. I can't help myself, but I'm in love with him. That feeling. And then we have Gene, who to me is, the epitome of settling. This is the can't be alone kind of love. And she loves him, but he doesn't love her. That is the way I see this. I see this as three distinct types of relationship that are built on the heels of one another. And so the true love, Anna, this is to me driven home, like you said, multiple times throughout the film. I mean, there's so many great moments to him and Anna's relationship. I love how they begin to meet with him hiding in the locker room and watching her from afar. There's this great song that plays a couple different times, and it does in this scene. It's uh, For Your Precious Love by Otis Redding, and it's it's beautiful. And then, of course, he goes and tries to dive in like her and starts to drown. There's a great moment where Anna says, I, I want you forever. There is no life without you at 15 there's the conflict that we had where he talks to her about saying, I don't go swimming with idiots and realizes the detriment that happens to his relationship with her. And he has to go back and he has to change that detail because he needs that to line up correctly because he wants very clearly wants things to go right with Anna. There's the wait for me near the lighthouse moment where she says, every Sunday, okay, until we see each other again, for life, okay, it's not over, you're the first and last person I'll ever love. That's where I get that first love, true love, and also is this Aquaman feeling, because someone's waiting for their true love at a lighthouse. Uh-huh, uh-huh. In all the timelines, he has these reasons for wanting a pool, in every single one, and it all goes back to Anna. And there's ultimately the line from Nemo that made me think, you know, what moment would we go back to if we could just pick one to live in forever? Like if you if you had to pick one moment in your life to replay or to stick in and you could never move forward from that. And he, he even says, I'm 15 and I'm in love. Like he claims it at that moment. This is the moment with Anna that is the defining moment of his life, in my opinion. And uh, and then with Elise, 
we have, like I said, she's in love with Stefano. And we have the great moments of her telling him, promise me that if I die, you'll spread my ashes on Mars. And what happens? He does. He follows through with that. Just as to the point about your, your, you brought up earlier about the car and him destroying the car. He does that to make her feel better. And to me, that exhibits this sense of care. He does. He genuinely cares about her, even though he doesn't love her the way that he does Anna. He wants her to be happy. And I think that he's trying to keep the car safe because he doesn't want it to blow up later and kill her. He's trying to prevent that tragedy because before that, we see him go through the car crash with her and have this burned face. Ultimately, that timeline plays out in real, in the end because he ends up on Mars with her ashes and a burned face. So we find out like that's not the one that he moves forward in. And then with the settling of Gene, he goes into it right from the start saying, I'm going to marry the next person that dance with me. And he sets a plan for his life to succeed at all the things he wanted with either Elise or Anna, but he never got. There's a moment where Gene comes to him and says, Nemo, do I matter to you? And my, my throat just got all messed up. And I just was like, I, t- I took a deep breath. Like, oh no. Like I felt so horrible in that moment for her. I had no idea what Nemo was going to say. And we get this letter from Nemo where he says, there comes a time in life where everything seems narrow. Choices have been made. I can only continue on. I know myself like the back of my hand. I can predict my every reaction. My life has been cast in cement with airbags and seatbelts. I've done everything to reach this point, and now that I'm here, I'm effing bored. The hardest thing is knowing whether I'm still alive. And that is what he sees his life as with Gene. And it calls back to his love for Anna. And how Anna, in the very beginning of the film, specifically says it would be boring, not much fun, to know what's going to happen in life. Because he's telling her he has this power to see the future. And he's calling back to that there, saying, I do, I, I get it, and I'm effing bored now. And so these three relationships is what I latched onto the most in this entire film, Patrick. I, I, the matter of choice took, took that away, but these, this idea, I couldn't help but put myself in the movie. And I was constantly thinking... Who is my Anna? Who is my Elise? Who is my Jean? And what would have happened if I made choices? How would I have had those relationships play out differently and be somewhere else than where I am now? And yet I am where I am and I only have memories of these three types of relationships. I'm Nemo in his old age and I'm trying to relive those various things in my head in order to pretend that they're real and sustain myself and get through, you know, not having a relationship. So I, I very much related to him and thought of them in those three distinct ways. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with all of that. That was definitely not something that was at the forefront of my mind. So this is why I'm glad we podcast because sharing two brains is better than sharing one. And I look at that relationship with Anna. I don't think this is true. But is Anna's relationship the only one where he didn't die or did he die when he was with her? I think he died drowning in the car. Did did he do that? Uh, he definitely died drowning in the car. Yes. I think I just, it's the I, one where he drove off the side of the road on it. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was a bird that hit the windshield and it. Mm-hmm. So was he with her? Or is that in the timeline with her? I'm not sure. What I'm, what I'm getting at is I feel like the pursuit of Anna is one that did not have predictability. It had a finiteness to it, but that lighthouse pursuit and laying on the bench and putting that circle out there, the whole movie could be interpreted as a pursuit of Anna and that when he finally got her, when they were able to reunite, when they weren't uneven, when he was at a place in his life where he could love her fully and she was at a place in her life where she could love him fully, that's when I think that resolution is found and that's when we get to the actual end of the movie up to that point you mentioned earlier his pursuit of her and her pursuit of him always seemed uneven after they split at 15 which is why i think he goes back to that memory i was in love at 15 and even with all the stuff that was going on around them with their so-called parents 
and that relationship, that relationship to them felt pure, unhindered, even though they were hiding it. Any other time in their life, whether it was him pursuing a career in, you know, being a talk show host of some kind for a science channel or, or, um, doing something else, it was always uneven at that point. And it wasn't until the end that I felt like there was synthesis there. You made a great point that the difference between their relationship and his relationship with these other two women is that it was mutual. They genuinely loved each other. There was oneness with them as opposed to you have Elise where he was actively pursuing her. He became the pursuer, but he wasn't being pursued. And with Jean, he was the one being pursued, but wasn't returning that. So there's this idea of being uneven. And when things finally line up, when things finally become symmetrical, I think his relationship with 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 her, with Anna, is the representation of that and the satisfaction that he gets. And in some ways, I feel like he has to kind of tell those stories in order to be confident and content by the end of that story so that he can say, and Anna was the one that I pursued. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there's really no debating his feelings with Anna being the ones that mean the most to him. Whether they are real, whether they happen or not, that imagined relationship or that actual relationship is what drives him and has driven him to this point in his life as a 118-year-old, as this last mortal on Earth, which is, by the way, really intriguing concept as to like kind of how he became the last mortal on Earth. That's part of the thing that I'm interested in when I rewatch this is the science and the whole how he got to be that old because he was obviously driven to this moment by this idea of the big crunch. He had to get to this day. And when his last words are being broadcast to the world, that's what he says. This is the most beautiful day of my life. Anna. Anna. Like his last words are Anna before he starts rolling back in time backwards to go back to those decisions all over again. Um, and I think it's, I think she's just going to always be that for him, that kind of calming singularity throughout his life, um, despite all of the way the other choices played out. So I, I was curious about something though, the fact that his name seems to be a play on words. And I couldn't help but notice that it might have a whole lot of different meanings. And I just wondered if you picked up on that at all or had any thoughts on that, because here are the four things that I kind of pulled off of his name. His name is Nemo Nobody, which is alliterative and pretty cool, right? First off, Nemo, the first thing I thought of was not Finding Nemo, by the way, but was Captain Nemo, who is where Finding Nemo got his name from, the, the fish Nemo. Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And then we have the fact that Nemo in Latin is the word nobody. This comes from the Odyssey, a story where uh, Homer is asked by the Cyclops, who are you? And he responds, uh, Odysseus, I believe, responds, Nemo, nobody. So in essence, his name could be nobody, nobody. And then we have the fact that Nemo backwards spells omen and the curiosity of, is that something that is intentional uh, and that plays into this story? And then we have something that I don't know that everybody knows about, but there is an old comic strip that spawned storybooks and a video game series called Little Nemo Adventures in Slum. This comic depicts a child Nemo who is having fantastic dreams that are interrupted by his awakening in the final panel. And I couldn't help but think, you know, that's exactly sort of maybe what we're getting at here. Is our Nemo just having fantastic dreams and being awakened in the final panel? There's this question, is he really even 118 years old? Or is all of this happening in the mind of his nine-year-old self because he's paralyzed at the train station, unable to move and make a final decision about his parents? I picked up on all those things with and without the help of the internet. Because when you deal with something like this heady sci-fi, even us to an extent, 
you're looking for symbolism. You're looking for every ounce of reinforcement of what this big theme is. And I was reading through some of the, some of the trivia on IMDb and I love the fact that it's pointed out that Anna is, is it an anagram? Homin- no, I can't remember. It's spelled the same backwards and forwards. Symbolic of the fact that that's how we're looking at Nemo's world backwards and forwards. We keep going back and forth in time. But there's also this idea that he is a nobody, that he's drifting in and out of time and he has no impact except on the women that he is connected with and they're in the kids, but we don't see him make any other mark on the world and we're not meant to. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is I think what you brought up, it's the relationships with these women and with Anna specifically. And so we see him sort of drifting in and out here and there. I think Omen, Nemo spelled backwards, is very fitting in the fact that he can see the future in some ways. But it's kind of a cheat. He's not God. He's just experiencing time in a multitude of ways and a multitude of of things. If he were God, he would know everything about everybody. And only he only knows everything about the people that he's come in contact with. How did you feel about that? I, I, total tangent real quick. But like that idea, that brief, brief idea where it's explained to us that the angels of oblivion touch your nose or touch your forehead when you're born before you get sent to a mommy and daddy uh, mommy nobody and daddy nobody that's funny um and he got skipped and so therefore he has the power to see the future i think see, that feels think, like a nine-year-old's imagination and it is i think it is i think that's an interpretive thing from a nine-year-old by the end of the movie when we hear the nine-year-old talking through the mouth of the adult that's a seasoned nine-year-old in fact he says that to the reporter he says Look what's happening. He's seen the future. He's seen the past. And now he's changing things. But even when he's talking about that as a nine-year-old, I believe it's older Nemo, but it's the nine-year-old who has that conscience because he's seen everything. At the very beginning, when we hear his voice and he talks about the oblivion, the angels of oblivion, I think he's talking as a nine-year-old. I don't think that – I'd like to think that he doesn't believe that now. Or maybe he does because, you know, whatever. It's – it's the movie. I did think it was kind of funny, though, that at the beginning, I think the, the scientist, the doctor asked him what his name was. And I think he said, Mr. Kraft. <laughs> it was a nickname given to him by the rest because it was can't remember a f- effing thing. <laughs> I thought that was great, too. I had never heard that before. And I cracked up and wrote it down, too. Yeah. And so I, I think I think names are especially powerful and significant in here at the very least, to support the bigger themes and ideas and imagery and storytelling that's going on. Well, if you don't have anything else, let's move into our connecting points. And Aaron, do you want to lead us off or do you want me to? I'll be happy to. Um, I'm, I'm going to read some stuff to set mine up a little bit here out of the Wikipedia article, actually. And it's an explanation a little bit about the story idea and then a quote from uh, Jaco van Dormal, who is the Belgian writer, co-writer, I guess, and director of this film. The idea of parallel lives has been explored before in films such as Run, Lola, Run and Sliding Doors. Ironically, both of these films were the same year in 1998, um, and these influenced van Dormal's writing. Unlike any of those, though, Mr. Nobody has philosophical underpinning inspired by scientific tomes on chaos theory and the butterfly effect and pigeon superstition, which, by the way, Patrick, I still totally do not understand pigeon superstition. That's one of the ones that went way over my head, and I'm going to have to dig into a little bit further after this is over. Uh, in the space-time continuum, director Jaco Vandermal stated, My starting point was a 12-minute short I made in 1982. A kid runs behind a train with two possible choices, to go with his mother or with his father. From there, we follow two possible futures. I started one version based on the fact that a woman jumps or doesn't jump on a train. Then Sliding Doors by Peter Howitt came out, followed by Run Lola Run by Tom Tykwer. I had to find something else, and that's when I realized that the story I was trying to tell was not binary, that I was above all interested by the multiplicity and complexity of the choices. With this screenplay, I wanted to make the viewer feel the abyss that is the infinity of possibilities. Beyond this, I wanted to find a different way of telling a story, 
I wanted the gaze of the child onto his own future to meet the gaze of the old man he has become on his past. I wanted to talk about complexity through cinema, which is a simplifying medium. While reality around us is more and more complex, the information is more and more succinct. Political speeches are more and more simplistic. What interests me is complexity, not the simple answers, which are reassuring, but bound to be false. So that's the background for his storytelling. And it all centers around this idea of this train or this train station which is interesting because there's always a train involved in these stories, it seems. It's a very common motif. We've actually noticed that in a lot of anime films that we've watched that deal with similar ideas. And I love that the train dilemma from his short film appears in this film. We see Nemo's mom leaving to get on the train, and Nemo staying with his father as she begs him to come. And he drops his dad's hand and runs to her to catch her as the train pulls away. We think that he's done. He's made his choice. But then we cut and we see his dad crying and screaming his name. He's running again, but he trips and he doesn't catch the train. Even though his arm is outstretched, his hand is barely missing his mom's fingertips. This is a no-win situation. It is an impossible demand to place upon a child, to ask him to choose a parent over another. Someone is going to be miserable. And someone is going to be glad, relieved, I guess, that he is with them. And so for me... When we go back to my one word takeaway of choice, this was one of the clearest depictions of the idea of choice on display throughout the film. And clearly, according to Mr. Nobody, the pivotal moment in his life. It's also incredibly easy to relate to that particular conflict and empathize with how he must have felt. And understand why then Nemo can't seem to remember whether he stayed with mom or dad, as the journalist asks him. I was completely wrecked for him in this moment. I cried, not going to lie. I was sad for his mom. I was sad for his dad, for their entire family. And as a divorced father of two kids myself, I've made it my life's priority to put them first, no matter what the situation is. Is it ideal that they don't live with me every single day? Heck no. Do I want that? Of course. Absolutely. But we have to do the best we can within the circumstances of our split as parents, the best we can for them. And it's given me such a heart for kids who don't get to experience that and essentially do have to choose or in most cases have that choice dictated to them. So there are so many things going through my head in that scene, both as a conceptual design of the display of what it means to have to make these hard choices and the paths that it can take us on, but also the emotional resonance of not knowing the outcome and losing out on something valuable, something meaningful, something incredibly important and needing something you need in your life forever because of the choice and how it does, like Nemo says, it paralyzes you in that moment, the possibilities are paralyzing. Yeah. And yeah, it just kicked up such powerful emotions in me. I just love, love, love that scene. And it's really cool to me that a short film was able to be expanded upon. And yet that central idea is the best thing in the movie, in my opinion, still. I think so, too. And I think to not necessarily attach it to yours but my connecting point was nemo's conversation with his older self and there were three things that i pulled away from that first of all the use of the word maybe is great older nemo is talking to younger nemo and he's saying life's full of possibilities but he starts talking about the maybes that nemo never experienced because they were maybes that he can't experience because they were in the past before he was born. He said, maybe your parents never met. Maybe you weren't the one. Maybe even before that, a sperm cell didn't get to the egg like it was supposed to. All of these things that happened prior to his actual existence, his older self is challenging him with that. He's saying, see, there are choices that happened before you. And in a way, I think he's kind of bringing him back down to earth and saying, 
you're not God. You have a privilege here of knowing the future and the past. What are you going to do with that? And I pulled away this notion of getting a chance to see your life fully realized, but at the same time being restricted because you're not changing the world. You're simply changing your circumstances to fit the world around you and yourself specifically. It really makes me wish, like I think a lot of people, that we could talk to our younger selves. I remember being in in classes at, in college and we were talking about things in literature and somebody said, how cool would it be to talk to your high school self about this book? Or how, how cool would it be to talk to your elementary school person about this or that? And there's some real value in that. What would I say if I could write myself a letter to the 16-year-old patch and say, what would I say? Would I say, don't make these choices? Would I say, keep doing that? I don't know. And what think, what I think Mr. Nobody does for me is it challenges me not to regret the past, not really to think about the past a lot, but to really understand that the life I have now, the choices that I've made, have purpose. And what those purposes are, for me specifically, are defined by my faith. But in general, they're defined by something, and they can't be changed. Nemo has seen his whole life, but his whole life can't be altered because he's already lived everything. It's like he's got these infinite choices that he can continue to make, but those choices are only related to him and nobody else. So he could choose not to go with his dad. He could choose not to go with his mom. Or he could choose, like you mentioned, to just sit there and not do anything. What's that going to do? Well, the movie sort of tells us a little bit. He goes to a forest and lets a leaf go. What does that mean? I have no idea. But it is a choice. By not making a choice, you're making a choice. And the fact is, as you mentioned early on, even if we don't make a choice, that's still something. That's still a choice that we make because it's going to have some kind of output. It's going to have some kind of outcome. It's it's our decision how we want to deal with that. And Nemo has that privilege. We don't, but I think he wrestles with the same things we do. And this conversation, I think, kind of brings that to, to light. Yeah, I mean, it, the movie is much better if you accept that you're not going to understand it all. I, I can't imagine being a person who has the need to figure it out in the moment for this film. Because if you were trying to do that, you would miss out on all of the emotion and all of the humanity and connections that are being made right? Um, through it. Even though there is definitely that spark for existential thought. Um, I also wanted to point out that the cinematography I thought was phenomenal. It's just absolutely gorgeous. There's a beautiful, beautiful shot in particular where Nemo is running after Anna and he is standing in the street at night with his arms out awaiting an oncoming car. And there's this moment where you think he's about to get run over and the headlights split symmetrically around him and it's two motorcycles instead. It's just a beautiful visual. Um, it looks a lot kind of like a Wes Anderson shot because of the symmetry. Um, only a dark Wes Anderson shot. And then there's also like these great visuals of the helicopters putting squares back in the ocean. That was really, really cool to see. And I'm sure has even more meaning than I fully understand. I'm definitely excited to unpack all of that when I get a chance to own this one and watch it many, many more times. And hopefully that ownership will find its way into our voodoo library because I want to watch it again as well. Well, that about wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. Be sure to come back in just over a day's time as we take on the Babadook. Well, at least in conversation. And that's going to be our March donor pick selected by our patrons. And if you want to get in on that selection process in the future, you can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash film. A dollar gets you a vote. And for a bit more, you get access to fun bonus content, like what we will be dropping in a couple of days as well. Thanks to our anonymous listener for a great pick. And Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. 
We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinPhil, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.